It was 1971, and in the month of April that year, Maxim Furek tells us, President Richard Nixon ended the blockade against the People's Republic of China. 200,000 anti-Vietnam War protesters marched in the shadow of the Washington Monument. Concert promoter Bill Graham closed down the Fillmore East and West, and the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the use of busing to achieve racial desegregation. Nationally, this two-minute and 49-second record was introduced by celebrity disc jockey Casey Kasem. Timothy appeared on his American Top 40 countdown as the highest debuting record for the week of April 11, 1971. And as Maxim Furek argues, the tune Timothy was part of that heady cultural vortex. Ever so slowly, the song reached critical mass, and then, like a nuclear chain reaction, exploded. Maxime Furek, a music journalist, has long been fascinated by this song and that explosion in cultural terms, but also for what the tune reveals about the workings of the record industry back in the day, about eerie parallels between the song and a mine disaster in Shepton here in Schuylkill County, not to mention the fact that the band at the heart of the story, The Boys, B-U-O-Y-S, came from his backyard, northeastern Pennsylvania. You might say there's enough material there for two books, and Furek has indeed written them. His study, Shepton, The Myth, Miracle, and Music, was released in 2015, and just now, in 2021, Sunbury Press issued Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy. It's a close examination of the history of the controversial song, Timothy, but also very important, the new book puts the boys and their different incarnations into the context of the larger music scene in northeastern Pennsylvania. He begins with the pioneers, Joe Nardone and the All-Stars, and Eddie Day and TNT, honing in on Timothy, probing, as a journalist would, just what's what. Trapped in a mine that had caved in and everyone knows the only ones left was Joe and me and Tim. When they broke through to pull us free, the only ones left to tell the tale was Joe and me. Timothy, Timothy, where on earth did you go? Timothy, Timothy, God, why don't I know? Furek writes, the plaintive song combined elements of a mining disaster with the enigmatic hint of cannibalism. Because many assumed that Timothy was about the Shepton disaster, that fictitious and baseless interpretation, in this writer's opinion, spread throughout the patches like a black pestilence. Tomorrow, Saturday, May 14th, there will be a reunion concert featuring those of the boys who are still with us, and Maxim Furek will be on hand 
telling us he suspects that in some way he may even have had a hand in sparking that event. There are many twists and turns and surprises in the whole saga of the song Timothy and the musicians who played it. And we begin in a very unlikely place. From hearing this song that hints at cannibalism, we move to another song that actually made it to the charts in those days, the well-known program, the hit parade, sad, lonely music, as Gerald Mermain tells us. The theme from the Moulin Rouge. Not as far-fetched as it might seem when we consider that, according to Colin Escott, Percy Faith's theme from Moulin Rouge had just supplanted Patti Page's Doggy in the Window as the number one record in 1953, when, at the very same time, Crazy Man Crazy by Bill Haley charted. Rock and roll was here to stay. Maxim Fuhrer, music journalist and author, paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us in anticipation of a book talk and signing at the Oosterhout Library in downtown Wilkes-Barre this Monday, May 16th at 5 p.m. for Somebody Else's Dream. Were you listening to music in grade school? Were you singing with the chorus? Well, absolutely. Uh, typically, uh, when I was in grade school, I would come, come home from school, get into my play clothes, and before I went out, I would listen to records. So we had a nice collection of records. My parents pretty much were into country and some pop. I remember my mother had a song called Theme from Moulin Rouge that was by Mimi Martel. And I tried to Google her and find her and I couldn't, but what a wonderful, haunting song. Uh, Wherever you are, I worry and wonder. Where is your heart? So that sort of stuck with me. And a little bit later on, the bug sort of hit me. And, and what I would do is I had a composition book and when I heard a song, I would go and write it down in alphabetical order by the artist. And then I would try to find out what the B side was. So I would have the A side and the B side you know, the name of the song, the writer of the song, and also the producer of the song, and the label. So for some reason, that information was just something that was important to me, that I had to have it, and, and that's what I did. So I was sort of a, sort of like a music geek. I mean, I love, loved music on the level that most people do, listening to it, and it, you know, it sort of takes us to another place and makes us feel good. But also, I had to get deeper, and it wasn't until later that I ran into some people that shared that same passion, you know, and these were fellow music historians and disc jockeys, so that was just a wonderful experience for me to meet those members of my own tribe, I would say. But you became a writer about music, not just someone who could get on Name That Tune, but someone who was able to write critically about music. Right, and I, th I think we could explain this psychologically. I think maybe Freud could, could step in here and say a few things, but there's a term called sublimation. And, you know, I would have liked to have been up on stage with a Stratocaster and, you know, having the screaming girls and, and all that, all the fame. But I never did that. I never put in the work. I never learned how to play a guitar back then. So, But what I did was I sublimated. I did the second best thing. So I wrote about it. And, I mean, I wrote about it with a passion. I read as many rock biographies and autobiographies that I could. And I just loved that lifestyle, that, you know, that genre. And, uh, and I uh, pretty much devoted my whole life to 
doing that, you know, and especially especially with music from northeastern Pennsylvania. And Max, was there anyone doing what you were doing in terms of looking with a critical eye at our scene? Back in the day, I think people like George Graham was doing a whole lot of that, uh, you know, producing local bands and writing for a number of outlets, including I had a paper called Timothy that was paying homage to uh, the song Timothy. And George wrote for me for a while. And uh, there were people like Richard Chizak, who worked with Joan Ardone, and Richard was just a whiz on music and recordings and all that data. Jerry Kishball was one, Jack Smiles, uh, Joe Butkowitz, who's now with the Scranton Times Tribune. So there were a number of people that were fellow rock journalists, but I was the one that started to write the books, and I was the one who had the tabloid newspapers, and uh, I just felt that I needed to do this. It was almost like my uh, my passion, and uh, and then I felt, too, that if I don't do this, who else is going to do this? I mean, I think it's important to go and ensure the legacy of Northeastern Pennsylvania music, as well as the paranormal aspects of Shepton. So that's what I did, uh, you know, because I wanted to do it, because I was capable of doing it, because nobody else was doing that. And that was fine. I mean, if, if this is my mission, then, then, you know, great. And I'm just glad to be able to do this. Well, you're here to talk about a new one, but you were here last time in 2016 to talk about the Shepton myth, miracle, and music. And that's a case of bringing together the history of mining in this area and the music. And again, as you talked about, the paranormal aspect. That was quite a national story because of that mix of things that was going on here. Remind people who might yeah, not well, Yeah, it was pretty bizarre. Uh, first of all, with Somebody Else's Dream, that was my attempt at connecting the song Timothy with the Shepton Mine disaster of 1963. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to go and write a book about that rock mythology. I just thought that it was really awesome. In Shapton, 1963, three men were entombed and only two came out, and there were allegations of cannibalism. To this day, there's allegations of cannibalism, and they never found the missing miner. And traditionally, during these mining events, these disasters, they never went down to retrieve the body because it was too costly and too dangerous. So they would just go and bulldoze it, have a shrine, have the priest do the last rites of of absolution and, and be done with it. When Rupert Holmes wrote Timothy, he based that on three different variables. One, he was doing a rewrite of 16 Tons for Andy Kim, the Canadian pop singer. He was watching The Galloping Gourmet. And then he had also just seen the movie Suddenly Last Summer with Tennessee Williams. So he put all those things together. And in Suddenly Last Summer, there was a scene where these young boys stoned and cannibalized a pedophile. So Rupert Holmes took all of these aspects and put it into a song. And the reason he wrote a song about cannibalism in a mine shaft, Rupert Holmes, was because he wanted to give some notoriety to the boys because he knew that Scepter Records was not going to go and pick up their contract. So he was just doing this intentionally. And Rupert was about 19, 20 years old. So this sort of kicked off his career. You know, he went on to the Pina Colada Man and everything. And I had the opportunity to interview Rupert in 1980 when he was at the Bloomsburg Fair and asked him all the questions about Shepton and cannibalism and everything. And yes, Timothy was about cannibalism in a mine. No, he said he didn't know anything about Shepton. Jerry Ludzik said, said that he did. And when Rupert was interviewed by the Hazelton Standard Speaker on the 50-year anniversary of Shepton, Rupert did say 
that just maybe he had heard about Shepton and just maybe that somehow seeped into his subconscious and maybe that, you know, so he, he opened up the door to possibility. You know, didn't quite ad- admit that there was a connection, but he did that. But it, this is just wonderful rock mystique and it just fits right in with, with rock and roll and, you know, and, and all that. Tell us a little bit more about the relationship between the two books. Well, well, somebody else's dream. Again, I was trying to go and write about that connection. I was writing that rock and roll book. And the more I investigated Shepton, the more that I saw that there were more aspects to it than just a, a, a pop song about cannibalism. And according to the miners, there were supernatural aspects and miraculous aspects. Now, you mentioned 50th anniversary of Shepton. Another 50th yeah, anniversary. Yeah. yeah, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, Somebody Else's Dream became Shepton. So that was 2016, and it went into another area and was really, really huge and popular with paranormal podcasts. And the high point was the Australian Mysterious Universe, and they did a 90-minute podcast on Maxim W. Furick and the Shepton book. And one of the most exciting things that ever happened in my career was just listening to those Australian voices go through the book and just sort of cherry pick and paraphrase what I had written. It was just like a really, really nice a thrill. So the book went international and that was wonderful. So the book that I really started out to write was somebody else's dream. And the only good thing I could say about the pandemic was that during the pandemic of 2020, I revisited somebody else's dream. And again, the connection between the song Timothy and the Shepton Mind Disaster and I spent so much of my time down in Florida revising and finishing and doing interviews and getting the, the book done. So we completed the book in 2020. Sunbury Press accepted the manuscript. They were really excited about the manuscript, so they accepted the manuscript and then published the book in 2021. And then what happened was, I mean, this sort of came full circle. We had a book signing at Joan Ardone's Gallery of Sound on Sunday, November the 21st. And so what we did was we organized a thing called the Gathering of the Tribe. And I invited all of these current and former musicians, disc jockeys, and uh, music journalists. And they showed up. There was just a ton of people there. And we were there to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Timothy and the Boys and also my books. We did a book signing and so many people showed up. It was just so heartwarming. And I like to think that just maybe, you know, the, the fact that there, people were just so accepting and so excited about the boys and Timothy, that maybe that led to the, the boys' homecoming that's going to be on Saturday, May the 14th. So I'd like to say that my book played some part in that. So the uh, Gathering of the Tribe was just a wonderful opportunity to see so many people that I knew over the years and uh, for us to be together in one room. Again, it was, our, it was the tribe. It was, it was great. Now, as we begin to understand, there was an evolution. It wasn't first the boys. It was the escorts, yeah. and then it was the boys, oh, yeah. and then it was Dakota, and now the boys are coming back. Remind us that there was a cycling through. Yeah, there was. Well, what happened? Actually, there was a split, and at one point, oh, I think it was in... Um, I want to say 76, there was a schism. There was a split between the boys and Bill Kelly and Jerry Ludzik. And Kelly and Ludzik wanted to write their own songs and do all kinds of other things. The boys were pretty much content in doing cover songs. And they were highly, there's nothing wrong with it. They were highly successful with doing that. You know, they had great instrumentation, great harmony. So they were good at what they did. But there was this split. 
So the boys, uh, after Bill Kelly and Jerry Ludzik left and became Jerry Kelly, and then they became Dakota. But the boys continued on, and they recruited Steve Fermansky, who had been with the boys and then quit. He came back, and then they also got John Buckley. So that became the, the boys. And what happened was with the boys and Dakota, they both continued on. They were very successful doing what they did, and they both ended their careers around the same time. So it was just pretty, uh, pretty interesting how that came about. You know, this was the musical story, uh, the jukebox of northeastern Pennsylvania, and the boys, Jerry Kelly and Dakota, gave us so much. One thing I want to point out, in 1980, Dakota had an MCA album called Runaway, and this was a classic AOR album, album-oriented rock, and it was engineered by Humberto Gattaca. It was produced by Danny Serafin of Chicago. He was the drummer that really liked uh, Jerry Kelly and uh, Dakota. Hawk Walensky, he was with Rufus. He was also one of the producers. And then they recruited uh, Steve Porcaro from Toto and Bill Chaplin, the vocalist from Chicago. So all of those guys were on this 1980 MCA record. But unfortunately, MCA did not give them the promotion that they needed. Even though Dakota was able to get onto the 1980 tour with Queen, 35 days opening up for Queen, this was huge. And again, there was no money. And, and that's how this works in, in the business. You know, you have push money to open up doors, to get stations to legitimately play the song. And uh, MCA just didn't do, do anything. And this was part of what we called the Dakota Curse. And it happened with Scepter Records, who didn't know what to do with, with the boys. And they were going out of business around the same time that the boys were peaking in 71. Polydor Records, who recorded all these wonderful songs produced by uh, Rupert Holmes, but refused to put out an album, and then also MCA. With, with Dakota, it seemed like it was one step forward and two steps back. They just didn't have that promotional, industrial push that they needed. The Queen Tour was certainly something. I mean, any kind of bounce that they got from that Queen Tour, they did, did it themselves. And then another unfortunate thing that happened, their drummer, Gary Driscoll, who was the drummer for the uh, Jerry Kelly band, he unfortunately was murdered, just a, a mistaken identity thing. He was murdered in, in Ithaca, New York, and that became part of some of this gloomy stuff that, that represented the Dakota curse. Tell us about the title. Yeah, uh, Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy. Somebody Else's Dream was the name of the, the Jerry Kelly band album. It was written by Jerry Ludzik. And I like that title because it seemed like their dream, you know, say the boys and Jerry Kelly and Dakota's dream got hijacked by so many people, namely corporations. And this, this, is, this story is as old as the day is long. I mean, so many bands will tell you about just being mistreated and e even the song Timothy. To this day, we don't know exactly how many copies were sold. 
You know, we don't know because they, the boys felt that they were being, they were undercut. You know, they didn't get the proper royalties and all this. Rupert Holmes said the same thing. We just don't know. And they always thought that Scepter's record keeping was suspect. And we know that there were plenty of lawsuits surrounding Scepter. Same thing happened with the Kingsman. Scepter Juan bought the rights to the Kingsman, Louis Louis, a major monster classic hit. And Kingsman had to go and sue to get the, the rights and the royalties and all that. So Scepter wasn't the most uh, honorable label, and the boys can attest to that, which they have. But I do want to say that the one thing, you know, this isn't a book about negativity. I mean, if anything, Dakota and Jerry Kelly were motivational speakers. I mean, they always talked about that positivity. And if you look at songs like If It Takes All Night and Don't Stop Believing and Don't Count Me Out, I mean, there were so many songs that they wrote that, that spoke of their resilience and their perseverance, and that's really, to me, what they represent. And uh, it's just like a wonderful thing. And, and I'll tell you what, Erica, uh, we are so fortunate to have been able to have grown up in that environment with such wonderful music in northeastern Pennsylvania. And this is like George Gramps, this is homegrown. This is our own stuff. And, you know, and again, I'm so proud to be the one that, that wrote the book on the boys and Timothy. And uh, you know, that maybe that's going to be part of my legacy. <laughs> so, but if it is, great. You're going to be at the Oosterhout once again. Tell us about where you'll be and what you'll be up to. Yeah, that's going to be great. Yeah, I've been invited to come to the Oosterhout. It's going to be on Monday, May the 16th. It'll be at 5 p.m. And we're going to do a, a brief program, you know, celebrating Timothy and the boys, and then a book signing. I'm hoping to have a couple of special guests there, and uh, I'm looking to a nice group of people coming out. And again, we're in celebration of the song Timothy, the 50-year celebration of Timothy, the highest charting rock song by any group from Northeastern Pennsylvania. So, uh, Oosterhout on uh, Monday, May the 16th. Maxim Furek, music journalist and author, who paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us in anticipation of a book talk and signing at the Oosterhout Library, South Franklin Street, in downtown Wilkes-Barre, this Monday, May 16th at 5 p.m. It's an event surrounding the release by Sunbury Press of his new book, Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy and there will be a book signing as well for Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy. And that's by the author and music journalist Maxim Furek, M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K. Timothy, 50 years, and there will be a concert, in fact, tomorrow at the Genetti's Hotel in downtown Wilkes-Barre, a reunion concert of the boys, and the website says that it's technically sold out, 
we'll send you there if you're still interested. And Maxim Furek will be on hand there as well. But you can catch him on Monday, this Monday, May 16th at 5, at the Oosterhout Library, South Franklin Street in downtown Wilkes-Barre, a book signing and talk. And that's for Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy, published by Sunbury Press. And his website is maximfurek.com, M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K.com.